Welcome to The Christian Outlook, the weekend radio program that helps you sort through today's issues in a way that honors your Christian faith. Our program is brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm your host, Kevin McCullough. This weekend across the country and around the world, Christians are celebrating Easter. In this special edition of our program, we'll step aside from the issues and personalities of today and look closely at the person of Jesus Christ and the issue he dealt with on the cross. It is God who plunges the sword of justice into his own heart on our behalf. Alistair Begg will explain why the historical events we celebrate this weekend are inseparably linked. You see, that's why many people who believe are not saved. They are unsaved believers. Albert Moeller will unpack for us exactly why the resurrection matters. The obvious implication being that if he is raised from the dead, he is who he said he is. And Chuck Swindoll will take us into the empty tomb with the gospel writer, John. If you're not going to believe this, then uh, my friend, what are you going to believe? It's a very special program we have for you. Thank you for joining us once again for the Christian Outlook. I'm Kevin McCullough coming to you from New York City in my home station, AM 570, The Mission. You can also listen on am570themission.com. We're going to begin our coverage this week on Good Friday. Why Friday? Because if we're going to appreciate more fully the glory of Easter, we need to understand why Jesus had to die in the first place. The theological word is propitiation the paying of a price in order to satisfy justice. Pastor Philip DeCourcy will unpack for us why Good Friday matters. He's the voice of the ministry Know the Truth. Let's pick up with his special Good Friday message. I want to um, take some time to, to concentrate on one of the great words of the Christian gospel, the word propitiation. I want you to understand the significance of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He was no mere martyr. He was not one someone caught in the, uh, between the cogs of the wheels of fate. The Lord Jesus Christ was delivered up by the predetermined will of God to die on the cross for us. It was planned. It was meant. It was intended. And the whole purpose of it was an act of propitiation. One of those big theological words that I hope to make a lot clearer and simpler for you. So if you brought your Bible, I'd encourage you to open it at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace. And here's the means by which we're made right with God, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as, and here's our word, propitiation by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because of his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, the Apostle Paul 
describes the gospel message in these terms. If you want to turn there, you'll find that he talks about that the word of the cross is foolishness to those that perish, but to those that believe it is the power of God unto salvation. Paul describes the gospel as the word of the cross. And what this verse tells us is that the gospel is a message not centered in essence on the life of Christ, but in essence upon the death of Christ. The gospel is focused upon Jesus' sufferings upon the cross. The gospel, the good news, is the word, the message of the cross. Telling us that there, are no, there is no good news apart from the blood-soaked cross. The good news is about Good Friday. The cross is um, the centerpiece The center of gravity as far as Christian theology is concerned. What the heart is to the body, the cross is to our faith. There's no gospel apart from the cross. There's no understanding God's love for you and me apart from understanding the word, the message, the logos of the cross. Now many do not believe that. Many today, even in the professing church, bypass the cross. They don't concentrate on the atoning death of Christ. They have a form of Christianity that emphasizes the love of God without the justice of God. They emphasize the life of Christ without the substitutionary death of Christ. And if we're going to understand the word of the cross, we need to understand the words of the cross. And let's just look at the meaning. Let's understand this big word, propitiation. At its heart, this this Greek term, Hilasterion basically means to appease someone's anger. To turn away someone's wrath so that they become more favorably disposed towards you. It's to remove that which was the obstacle that stood between a reconciliation. It it means to make satisfaction for some wrong did done or some law broken. It's the silencing of the cry of justice. Now, Outside of the biblical use, you'll find that this word is used of of ancient pagan worshippers that sought to appease their deity by various gifts, by various sacrifices. In fact, in 2 Kings 3 verse 27, you'll be given an example of this where a man sacrifices his son to the pagan god Shemesh. And you see this idea that, that... propitiation is appeasing the deity by some sacrifice that you make some offering that you give so that you can assuage the deity's anger that you can make the deity more favorably disposed towards you that's our word but i want you to see how the bible uses it because it's a glorious term and it's a wonderful truth here's the amazing thing because we have read in romans 3 and first john that when the Bible uses the word propitiation to satisfy, to assuage anger, to turn away wrath, it refers to the work of God in Christ, not the work of man towards God. That's the amazing thing. Who makes propitiation in the Bible? Towards God. God does. God does the propitiating. He's the one that needs to be propitiated satisfied his anger towards man is real we have sinned and fallen short of his glory 
We have broken his law. We have, de- we have denied his son. We have not kept his commandments. We are in debt. We're on the wrong side of God's law. We're on the backside of God's holiness. And we need to make amends. And many faiths teach us that here's how we make those amends, by keeping this set of rules or keeping this set of regulations. And the amazing thing about the Bible is, the amazing thing about the Christian gospel is that it's actually God who satisfies himself. Who does the propitiating in the Bible? It's God. Christ's death was a propitiatory sacrifice for our sins. That's the amazing thing. Man is utterly, listen, man is utterly incapable of satisfying God's justice. Perhaps you're with us today and we're so glad, and, and, and you've been brought up on this idea, you know what? Here's what I do to please God. Here's what I'll need to do to get into heaven. And the Bible is so far removed from that thinking, you wouldn't believe it, my friend. The Bible tells us that it's, 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 it's not possible for you and I to satisfy God because he's infinitely holy. And we're deep-dyed sinners, and there's just no way we can bridge that chasm. There's no way we can pay off that debt. And the amazing truth of the gospel is that it is God himself who satisfies his own justice. If I could put it this way, it is God who plunges the sword of justice into his own heart on our behalf. It is God who is to be propitiated, okay? God is offended. God's anger is real toward us. He's a judge. He's holy, he's just, and his law has been broken, and therefore his law demands satisfaction. His law demands restitution. God is the one to be propitiated. But the amazing thing is, from what we read, it is God who propitiates himself. His law demanded our, the payment for our sin. And yet his love and his grace and his mercy wanted to reach out and reach down to mankind. In fact, that dilemma, I don't know if you saw the movie 1967, the movie Camelot. Tells the story of King Arthur and his round table. The story centers upon three persons, really Arthur, Guinevere, his wife, and Lancelot, his favored knight. But King Arthur finds out he's been betrayed by both his wife and his, his, his favorite uh, knight who have uh, fallen in love and committed adultery. The sin is found out and Guinevere is tried by a jury, found guilty of treason and condemned to burn at the stake. Now the king is torn. His passions are divided. On the one hand, he realizes that, you know what, the law has to be upheld and justice has to be served. His citizens need to see that the the kingdom is governed by laws, even to the extent of the queen herself. Yet on the other hand, he has shared her bed. He has enjoyed her love. He has a heart for this woman, despite her sin, despite her betrayal. It comes that scene in the movie where uh, Guinevere is tied to the post and, and the wood is put beneath the queen's feet and a servant approaches uh, Arthur and says, Your Majesty, why not ignore the verdict and pardon her? But you cannot do that, can you? If she dies, your life is over. If she lives, your life is a fraud. Kill the queen or kill the law. Do you see the king's dilemma? Now, 
If you watch the movie, King Arthur gets off the hook because, because you know, Lancelot comes riding in and scoops Guinevere off and takes her away, and so she escapes the, the burning of, of, the, of uh, that awful death. But there was no Lancelot for God. He had to uphold his law by killing us, by executing his justice upon us in our sin. And yet his love wanted to reach down and reach out to us. That was the predicament God was in. He could not forgive us that at the same time ignore his justice and his law. How was that resolved? Folks, good Friday. You can catch more of Philip DeCourcy and Know the Truth at ktt.org. Coming up, we continue the resurrection story with Alistair Begg. You see, that's why many people who believe are not saved. They are unsaved believers. Don't miss the next segment of The Christian Outlook. We'll be right back. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm your host, Kevin McCullough. The life and death of the person of Jesus Christ is one of the most widely reported and historically verified facts from that period of human history. The events of Good Friday happened, and they happened in space and time. Scholars do differ on the exact date, but there's a very good case that Jesus died on April 3rd in the year A.D. 33. If you and I agree on the fact of his death, and the other facts surrounding the life and ministry of Jesus, does that mean that we are therefore Christians? Pastor and radio programmer Alistair Begg will help us answer that question and more in his message from 1 Corinthians 15. Let's join the voice you'll recognize from his program, Truth For Life, available online at truthforlife.org, and his Easter message titled, The Essence of Saving Faith. There will be some of you who are here this morning, and for you, Easter is frankly out there and beyond you. But if you're dead honest when you put your head on the pillow at night, when you drive in the car on your own, there is that sense of wistfulness, that longing that it might be so. But you know what happens? We read books, we listen to people on the television, we shake such notions off as being a nuisance and an uncomfortable experience. And we look within ourselves and we say, I didn't get where I am today by worrying about these kind of things. I can handle this fine. I can turn over a new leaf. I can perhaps introduce some kind of spiritual dimension to my life. I can perhaps even go along to one of these church buildings if it keeps somebody happy. But let me tell you, it's a dead-end street. It's a dead-end street. It doesn't work. And it's worse than that. It actually keeps you from facing up to your real need, which is Jesus Christ to be your Savior, Lord, and King. 
I come back to the medical analogy. To treat the symptoms in a superficial way while denying the underlying condition must surely be one of the worst things that can ever happen to a person. There are two aspects to the essence of saving faith that Paul addresses, and I want to mention them to you, and briefly so. We've alluded to them already, and the first is internal conviction. Internal conviction. It is with your heart, he says, that you believe and are put right with God. Don't think in terms of emotion. If you think in terms of emotion, you think wrongly. We've tended to take the heart and sequester it for issues of um, pop songs and, and expressions of February the 14th and so on. But when the New Testament uses the word for heart, it is actually describing our epicenter. It is describing the whole of ourselves. In other words, it is coming to a core conviction and belief that is at the very essence of who I am as a person in such a way that I can never be the same person again. For if I come to believe this, it will alter everything. And that, incidentally, is why some of you have chosen not to believe, because you're intelligent people and you don't want anything altered. You're too bright to buy the idea that you can add Jesus in a supplemental way to your life and continue as you please. You know that somebody may say that, but Jesus never said that. And so you said the implications are too demanding. It's going to be too revolutionary. You're right. They're very demanding, very revolutionary to believe in your heart that Jesus is raised from the dead. It's not just to believe that Jesus is raised from the dead, but it is to believe that in being raised from the dead. All that Jesus claimed to be and all that Jesus accomplished, he has come to perform. Let me say that to you again in case you miss it. You dare not divorce Good Friday from Easter Sunday morning. The reality of the atoning death of Jesus is irrelevant unless Jesus is alive from the dead. The reality of Jesus being alive from the dead has nothing to do with anything apart from the reality of what happened on the cross. So that Easter Sunday morning is built in every right sense on the foundation of the events of Good Friday. And to believe in this way, just so you understand, to believe in this way is not to give mental assent to material that is conveyed to you in the way that I could tell you that the distance between Glasgow and Edinburgh is some 45 miles on the M8. You can believe that without it making any difference to you at all. You can take my word for it. You can verify it by checking in an atlas. You may never see Glasgow. You may never go to Edinburgh. It is completely extraneous to you. It doesn't matter a whit. But if I find you in Lake Erie on an upturned boat, and the, wa the water is washing you off the boat, and you are without any ability to save yourself, and I come to you in another craft, and I offer you the opportunity of salvation, then that kind of believing, that kind of entering into it, that kind of resting upon it, is what Paul is mentioning here. You see, that's why many people who believe are not saved. They are unsaved believers. And you may be one. And I don't want you to be one. Because if you stay like that, you will die like that. And you don't want to die like that. 
No, to believe in this way is to cast yourself upon Jesus as unsaved, lost, helpless, in order that you might be saved. Have you ever done that? The man who taught me historical theology years ago in London, Hugh Dermot MacDonald, we called him Derry Mac, in one of his purple passages he said, and listen to this, it's wonderful, Christ didn't come to supplement you at your best, but to redeem you at your worst. In the end, it's not cheer that you need, but salvation. Not help, but rescue. Not a stimulus, but a change. Not a tonic, but life. Internal conviction and finally, external confession. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. In other words, a public and straightforward acknowledgement of our belief in Jesus. Says one commentator, those who are afraid or ashamed to acknowledge Jesus before men cannot expect to be saved. The want of courage to confess is decisive evidence of the want of heart to believe. The want of courage to confess is decisive evidence of the want of heart to believe. Are you ready and willing to believe that Jesus is Lord? In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 says that nobody can say Jesus is Lord except God makes it possible for him to do so. They say, how does that work? I can speak the English language. If you ask me, I can stand up right now, any one of you will say, and say Jesus is Lord. Well, clearly Paul must mean something different, mustn't he? It's the same distinction. A belief that is cerebral that is an ascent to information, is not the same as a belief which is life-changing, whereby I cast myself back on the promise of salvation. And a declaration that is verbal, but is not the expression of a life changed, is an irrelevant declaration. Coming up, the tomb is empty. The obvious implication being that if he is raised from the dead, he is who he said he is. Albert Moeller. More of the Easter special edition of The Christian Outlook in just a moment. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Kevin McCullough. After Jesus was crucified, it was a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea who wrapped his body in clean linen before Christ was laid in a tomb. Recalling the testimony that Jesus would be raised on the third day, Matthew 27 tells us how guards were placed in front of the tomb. In the words of Scripture, lest his disciples come and steal him and say to the people, he has been raised from the dead. In Matthew chapter 28, that tomb was found empty and the guards were charged with protecting it were not looking good. That's where we'll pick up with a message from Al Mohler, the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and editorial board member for the Salem Media Group. One of the interesting things that Matthew helps us to see is there's certain human patterns of behavior. One of the human patterns of behavior that is not new is the fact that people assume that money can solve the problem. Matthew is so interested in helping us to understand this detail. This is Matthew, the tax collector. He now helps us to understand the danger of money. Money shows up here. They took money. 
They took a large sum of money and gave it to the soldiers. And they did so with a bribe. It's made very clear in verse 13. You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping. That's the plan. The plan is you say to Pilate, while we were sleeping, his disciples came and stole him away. And look at verse 14. Another irony here. Here's the superb irony. If this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. If this comes to the governor's ears, you know, if this gets out, fellas, it's out. If folks get wind of this, they've got the full blast. If this gets out, if this should come to the governor's ears, they don't get it. There's, there's something here that Matthew's readers would have known. When you look at the end of verse of uh, chapter 27, the end of the chapter in verse 66, and they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. That seal was the seal of imperial Rome. It was probably in the form of Pilate's own seal, which would have been that Pilate was the deputized agent of Caesar. Caesar's seal can be opened only on Caesar's authority. The seal is the representation of the government and of governmental authority. And as the archaeologist said, that seal belongs to someone and means something. Well, in this case, the seal belongs to Caesar. And the penalty of breaking that seal or allowing it to be broken under your charge was death. Caesar didn't take incompetence lightly. You don't keep your empire with incompetent soldiers. The, the priests here know they've got something on these soldiers. The soldiers were given the assignment to guard the tomb. They did not guard the tomb. They failed. They failed miserably. The tomb is empty. Not only is it empty... It's empty in such a way that everyone's going to know it's empty. The entire city of Jerusalem is going to be abuzz with this news. It's going to spread like a contagion. These men now have lives very much on the line. But they're not the only ones with a lot at risk here. The chief priests, the Pharisees, the temple authorities have much at risk. They knew they had so much at risk. That's why they asked for the cohort of guards to be placed at the tomb. They remembered, even when the disciples apparently did not, that Jesus said on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. And now they have an empty tomb. Scrambling to do what they can devise, they come up with a means of sealing the tomb. That doesn't work. The tomb is now empty. They come up with what they can devise, which is a lie to Pilate and a bribe to his soldiers. And as we come to verse 45, we read, and they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. This becomes very clear in the book of Acts. 
Luke helps us to understand the book of Acts that indeed this story was very much out there, that, that Jesus' body had been stolen. The resurrection of Christ is and remains the great truth claim of Christianity. No one in the New Testament doubted that Jesus was crucified and died. The question was whether he was raised from the dead. The obvious implication being that if he is raised from the dead, he is who he said he is. Coming up, the Apostle John inside this tomb. And he saw, look at this, look at this, and believed. Why? He saw it. He saw it. Chuck Swindoll, when the Christian Outlook returns. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Kevin McCullough. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. As word got out that this tomb where the body of Jesus had been laid was now empty, you can imagine the depth of interest and the excitement that must have marked the interaction amongst the early followers of Jesus. Was the body stolen? Or could it be? Is Jesus indeed raised from the dead? We're going to flip over to the Gospel of John now and turn to Chuck Swindoll and his message, Triumph Shouts from an Empty Tomb. The voice familiar to so many of you from his program, Insight for Living, was preaching from chapter 20 in the fourth gospel. He captures well the exhilaration that comes with the recognition that Jesus the Christ is risen from the dead. What we have is John's account of what they saw when they got to the open tomb. Okay, the stones rolled away. The angels have announced he is not here. He has been raised. And so Peter and John, hearing this, go on a foot race to the place of the dead. Okay. Look at how John describes it. He's very proud of the fact that he outran Peter. You will notice it several times in here. Look at 20 and verse 3. Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple, that's John, and they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together. (laughs) They're running to the tomb. And the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter. That's important, okay? And he came to the tomb first. Stooping down, John, he doesn't go in. He stands at the mouth of the tomb and he looks in and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. All of a sudden, you remember, they said they stole his body. Anybody who steals a body would take it mummy and all, wouldn't he? He wouldn't be like unwrapping, tossing it aside, or rewrapping. Impossible. But they saw wrappings. At least John does. As he looks in, he sees the wrapping. See that verb? He saw. He saw the linen wrapping. It's a word for just basic observation, like you'd see a red light, or you'd see a ball thrown over a fence. You'd see a child playing in the street or in the yard. You see it, just an observation. There's another verb that is used of Peter. I want you to check this. Verse uh, 5 He saw the linen wrappings, but he didn't go in. Now, Simon Peter, verse 6, therefore also came following him. Here it is again. And entered the tomb. So he said, get out of the way, John. And so Peter walks in, 
and he beholds theoreo. Different word entirely. We get our word theorize from this Greek term. Peter comes in, and he's right at the wrappings, and he's intrigued by what he sees. What does he see? Well, he beholds the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head not lying with the linen wrappings, but, important term, rolled up in a place by itself. In the shape of a body that you could literally put your hand and arm into because there's nothing inside. Tinney adds, the word used to describe the head cloth does not connote a flat folded square, but a ball of cloth bearing the appearance of being rolled around an object that was no longer there. Got it? You've seen uh, the fantasy film, The Invisible Man? You've seen it, haven't you? And when he carries something, all you can see is what's being carried. In this case, all you can see are the wrappings and the face cloth, still as if it were around a head, but there's no head and, and, there, and, and there is no body. Now look closely. Verse 8, here's John, Then entered the other disciple also, who had come first to the tomb. One more time, he says. And he saw, look at this, look at this, and believed. Why? He saw it. He saw it. There's a different word entirely. It's not a general observation. It's not theorizing on what it might be. It clicked. I got it. It's like you used to think when you sat in math class, bored to tears, not able to figure out the problem, and your teacher up there working hard to explain it, finally hits on an area you, you, you can see it come together. And you say, almost without lifting your hand, I got it! That's what happened to John. But the best part is not that he saw. It's that he believed. That's what happens when you see it. That explains why you could have a loved one who can sit through church, bored to tears year after year after year, and you yourself are on the edge of your seat. You get to something like this, it's like, man, fantastic, isn't it? God next to you goes, what time is lunch? He doesn't see it. He doesn't get it. It hasn't clicked. Be patient. Be patient. He'll get sick someday, and he won't know how to handle the word from the physician that he's not going to get well. Like a man I just talked to this morning that probably won't live six more months. Believe me, he sees it. And he believes it. It's amazing what that does to you. Pain plants a flag of reality in the fortress of a rebel heart. Later, the body is gone. He visits with some in the, around the tomb, and for 40 days he appears. I mean, if he's been raised, of course he would appear. You know what I found interesting? Listen to this. In his appearances, after his resurrection... He never spent time with unbelievers, always with followers. The only two accounts would be James, his brother, who didn't believe until the resurrection. Of course not. You want to grow up with Jesus? 
I mean, you're going to believe he's the Messiah? The guy that always folded his socks, never disobeyed? You're going to be mad at him the whole life as you're growing up. And all of a sudden, he's raised from the dead. Even your brother will believe. You know the other? Saul of Tarsus. On the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to him, and he believed. Other than that, no one else who didn't know Christ. Doesn't that seem unusual? I mean, if you had been the resurrected Christ, don't you think you would have gone, I'd like to talk to Pilate. I got a couple of hands here I'd like for him to look at. Or how about the Sanhedrin? Hey, I'd like an audience with the Sanhedrin. The Supreme Court willing to have an audience with me? Who are you? Well, I got a scar on my side. I got hands. I got feet scarred. I'm Jesus. I've come back from the dead. By the way, there's some scars around here. Came from the crown of thorns. I'm back. But he doesn't do that. Coming up. If you're not going to believe this, then, uh, my friend, what are you going to believe? We continue with Chuck Swindoll in the final segment of The Christian Outlook. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm your host, Kevin McCullough. If the great and glorious claims of Easter are true, those great claims demand something from us. For those who believe and have placed their life trust in that risen Savior, this weekend calls for praise and for a greater degree of life obedience to a risen Lord who has defeated sin and death. This weekend is a reminder of a truth that we are part of a kingdom that will not end. For those who don't believe or perhaps believe in a far-off sort of way, this weekend provides another opportunity to consider Christ. Let's return for a few more minutes of Chuck Swindoll and his message, Triumph Shouts from an Empty Tomb. This is the real meaning of Easter. Forget all about the the bunny rabbits and the colored uh, of eggs. Forget the symbols of spring that often confuse and conceal the real meaning of what we celebrate. I love this. No tabloid will ever print the startling news that the mummified body of Jesus of Nazareth has been discovered in old Jerusalem. By the way, they've never seen the body. Nobody's ever presented the body in all these years. Why? Because he's in heaven. He adds, Christians have have not carefully embalmed the body enclosed in a glass case to worship. Thank God all we have is an empty tomb. The glorious fact the empty tomb proclaims is that life for us does not stop when death comes. Death is not a wall, but a door. And eternal life, which may be ours now by faith in Christ, is not interrupted when the soul leaves the body at death. We live on and on because he lives we shall live also. (laughs) How good is that, huh? Unless you don't believe it. So you're left with the haunting reality that I've got all this evidence to deal with and I really don't have many answers. God planned it that way. But you're free to leave it alone and die in your unbelief and face a very frightening future. I'd like us to bow our heads together.
Let's just sit quietly before him. You don't need more information. What you need is solitude. Time to think it through. If you're not going to believe this, then, uh, my friend, what are you going to believe? And is that going to work for you when you breathe your last? That wraps up this edition of the Christian Outlook. Thanks for joining us. You can hear more from Chuck Swindoll at insight.org. I hope that each one of you experienced the full joy and the full benefit of the resurrected Christ this weekend. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. And never miss these and other great conversations. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers Charlie Richards and David Posehan and Chanda Shizala, I'm Kevin McCullough. Join us next time for the Christian Outlook.